tonight. I do love the Christmas hymns. I don't know if you're like me or if you grew up in a family like mine, but I do not listen to Christmas music until the day after Thanksgiving. Does anyone do that still? Is that, is that the thing? Okay. All right. There's still a few of us holdouts, and we are, we are the righteous ones in God's eyes because we, are, we wait. No, I'm just um, But no, I, do, I love the Christmas environment. I love the, I love the trees. I love the star. Whoever put that star up, that was, that was a great idea. You, you expect the stars to be up, but it's like low, so that's, that's kind of cool. It's kind of, you know, hipster and weird. Um, so, yeah, so we're talking about lowly tonight. This is actually a really, really good topic, and Paul asked me to talk on it, and he asked the other two speakers that are going to be here in the next couple weeks to talk about it, and we'll just see how my interpretation of lowly goes, and you can just, you can judge me against uh, everyone else, and I'm sure it'll only get better from here, so... Um, but what we are going to talk about specifically along that line is Mary's song from the book of Luke. So you can start turning your way there to Luke chapter 1. And we are going to look at the characteristics of Mary being a lowly individual. Okay, so the heading that I have this under but the question that I have tonight for us is, whom does the Lord regard as lowly? Whom does the Lord regard as lowly? We live in a society today that feigns honoring the lowly and the marginalized. And to illustrate what I mean by that, let's just consider, uh, perhaps some of you heard on November 15th, the news was broken that, uh, I think it's Brian. I'm going to just say it's Brian. It's spelled Brian, but there's like a there's a accent over the I. Brian Nguyen, uh, a 19-year-old, so about your all's age, roughly, uh, was crowned the well. She was the the fir- or he or I don't, I don't know. I never know how to how to do pronouns these days. But this individual was crowned the first ever transgender Miss America contestant to win a local pageant. Brian Nguyen. And it was the Greater Dairy, I think, in New Hampshire. So uh, they won a, a beauty pageant under the Miss America brand. And because they won this, this individual, they will get to go on to compete now at the New Hampshire State Miss America. And Lord only knows where that will go from there. Now, when, when here, here we go, stumbling over the, the pronouns. I'm just going to use she, okay? Although, okay, most of us know that this person was assigned a biological male body, because that is what transgender is. You're assigned a gender at birth, um, and then for some reason, uh, this is happening more and more, and our society really promotes this. You get confused about who you are, and you identify as a gender that you're not. Okay, and that's, that's what's going on with this individual. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use she, even though those of us sitting here all know it's a he, okay? Just, just for the, the sake of moving along. Now, she wants to pursue a career, as she was asked, she wants to pursue a career in modeling and one day create sustainable, ethical, and inclusive products such as clothing, cosmetics, and accessories. And on Twitter, she started a, a hashtag... Hashtag queens are everywhere. 
And when asked about this, she said it, it hopefully will help the next generation develop self-confidence, realize their potential, and become leaders of their destiny. And I don't want you to miss something. I don't want you to miss this idea of creating inclusive products. This is a term that is, is used a lot nowadays. And this is something that's really good for us to think about as college students, by the way. R really good because, because these are the issues that you are confronted with at secular campuses. And whether or not it's in your personal sphere, I'm sure you know somebody who knows somebody. Okay, this is, this is stuff for our generation to deal with, okay? But this idea of, of inclusive, right? This is, this is a code word that is used to get you to have sympathetic feelings towards individuals who are taking a stand and trying to transform society. We know that the issue is not inclusiveness. It's not about inclusiveness. In fact, that, that implies that you're excluding somebody from something. And what I, mean, what I mean by we know it's not, the issue's not inclusiveness, is that, you know, I, I, I could say I didn't, I didn't make it in the NBA. I mean, I didn't try to get in the NBA, but I am pretty tall, and people sometimes think maybe I should be good at basketball, but I'm not. I'm actually pretty terrible at basketball. But I've noticed that there is, generally speaking, an uh, underrepresentation of short, gangly, white males in the NBA, right? <laughs> and is the issue because they're excluded from that? Well, it's, it's not about being included versus excluded. It's, it's that that's not, that's not where they belong. They don't, they don't play basketball well. They're going to be beat by everybody else. That's not for you, right? So nobody's going to raise the issue and say, hey, why aren't you including more of these people? They, they deserve just as much of a shot as everyone else. But this, this idea of inclusiveness, that, that's meant to conjure up feelings of sympathy for people who may be in a minority, and certainly transgenders would be in a minority um, as we follow this example. Um, but it's, it's trying to reframe our minds to think a certain way and think, oh, this person is oppressed, we need to help them. And so when I see things like this and when I see all the headlines in today's society, it's, it's not hard for me to, to come to the conclusion that our society is confused about what it means to be lowly because certainly there, there is a, a good sense in which America is about uh, caring for the poor and the oppressed, and I applaud that, and, and we have been for, for, for you know, centuries, right? But, again, who are? Who are the lowly? Who are the poor? Who are the ones that God regards as lowly? Isaiah 66 is a good place to start as we just begin to unpack this question, and it relates to what we're talking about in, uh, in, in Luke. But... Listen to what the Lord says in Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. He says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? So God is so magnificent, so glorious, 
that heaven is his throne and this earth that you and I wake up on every day and breathe in the air and go to school and have all the trouble and things that make us cry and things that make us laugh and the greatest extremes of joy and sorrow, this is just God's footstool. It's just a a little place for him to rest his feet in terms of how magnanimous and great he is. And he says, what is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is good. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You want to get God's attention. You don't do the things that this world finds glorious and commendable. And, you know, you don't, you don't go out and be the, the biggest showboat. No. You get God's attention when you are humble, contrite in spirit, when you tremble at your word. And I think this, this attitude, this demeanor, is, is well exemplified in a person that we think about around this time of year. And I'm not going to say Jesus, because you'll get that next week. We're going to talk about Mary tonight. So go to Luke 1, and let's talk about Mary. And we're going to see six or so things in which I think Mary exemplifies being lowly. And it's going to center on her song. It's called Mary's Magnificat. It's, it's a title that is given to her song because uh, one of the words, uh, the, the first word, in fact, that she says uh, is translated into Latin as Magnificat, or it's the idea of giving glory to God or magnifying his name. And so we will be in Luke 1.46, but just to get the context and the zero in our minds, I really want you guys to open your Bibles because I want you to look at the text so we can see what, what God's word has to say to us because every single word matters and we should treat it that way. So the first thing I want you to know, the first characteristic of Mary that exemplifies this loneliness is that God cares for the nameless and insignificant. God cares for the nameless and insignificant. And what I mean by that is look at verse 27 where Mary is introduced in Luke's gospel. The first description of who she is is that she's a virgin. How's that for an introduction, right? I was introduced tonight. You guys all know my, uh, my uh, Twitter bio that I wrote back in... I don't even use Twitter anymore. Back, back you know, 10, 10 or 15 years ago, whenever it was that I signed up for Twitter, I wrote a dumb little thing. I, I called myself a pragmatic romanticist or something like that. Um, and, uh, but anyways, think about how you like to be introduced, right? If Mary had a say in how she would have been introduced, she might have said, well, you could use my name. My name is Mary. Or you could have said, you know, any any of these you know, flattering details about myself if she was you know, all about herself. But look at, look at how Luke introduces her. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. So this individual is just known as a virgin, a parthenos. That's the same Greek word that's used in Isaiah 7.14. So of course Luke is probably trying to uh, clue us into the fact that this is a fulfillment of prophecy 
in Isaiah 7.14, there's the prophecy that the virgin will conceive, okay? So, of course, that's why Mary is relevant here. But if we think about the way Luke introduces other individuals in his gospel, well, we can read up earlier in verse 5, it says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. He was a priest, and his name was Zechariah. We get his name, we get that he's a priest. He's of the division of Abijah. He's somebody. Okay, this, this matters if you know the Old Testament, because he comes from a priestly line, okay, the, the priestly line of the priestly nation, which is Israel. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. So she, she's from somewhere important. She's from the daughters of Aaron. We're talking Moses and Aaron, right? Like Old Testament Israel history. This should make you excited if you're a follower of God and the follower of the Bible. And her name was Elizabeth, right? She's backed up with all this information about who she is. And then we come to Mary. We come to Mary. And it just says in the sixth month, that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee, lowly Galilee, a city named Nazareth, kind of off the beaten path. Nobody really cared about Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. So Mary's introduced, and the first thing we learn about her is not who she was and what she did and what her great accomplishments were. No, just the fact that she's a virgin. And if anything, her claim to fame is that she is betrothed to a man who's from the house of David. Okay, so they're not married yet. They're going to get married, and then she'll be related to David's house, perhaps. Or if you, if you take Luke 3 as Mary's gene- genealogy, perhaps she's in the line of David as well. But that's not important. This, this pedigree, this credentials is not important to Luke. He wants you to know that she's a virgin. And then we finally get to, and the virgin's name was Mary. Okay. So she has a name. But the angel came to her, right? The angel came to this individual that had no uh, reputation whatsoever. She was just like everybody else who hadn't been married yet and hadn't known a man. So God cares and regards as lowly those who are nameless and insignificant, and God's about to turn her life around, as you know. We won't belabor the point. You guys all know the story. The angel comes and says, you're going to conceive and bear a son, and he's going to rule over his father's kingdom. He's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And this is super good news for Mary. And how does she respond? Well, that, the way she responds gives us our second point about whom the Lord regards as lowly. So the Lord regards as lowly those who believe the Lord. Those who believe the Lord. So notice Mary's response to the angel when he tells her that she's going to conceive and bear a son. She says, how will this be since I am a virgin in verse 34? And, and if you break it down in the Greek, it's how will this be since I have not had relations with a man? Okay. It's a pretty good question. Pretty innocent question. Okay. Just explain to me how this is going to come about. It's not in any way indicating faithlessness or anything like that. It's just, I mean, what, what would you do, <laughs> right? I know only half my audience can really identify with this, but what would you do if the angel came and said, you're going to be pregnant with the Son of God, and he's going to reign on David's throne? 
It, I think it's a natural question. How will this be? How will this be since I'm a virgin? And then verse 35, the angel answers and says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. We don't have time to go cover this, but I love it. It's a beautiful thing that God does. In, you know, through, it's, a, it's almost a theme in Luke that God is coming and uh, reversing the fortunes of those who are lowly, and Elizabeth is definitely an example of this. But it's good for our purposes and for our context to know that uh, the angel has already visited Elizabeth and uh, prophesied to her that she will bear John the Baptist. And this is a woman who is in her old age, and she was barren. She couldn't have kids, okay? It's like the opposite of Mary, or it's, it's a different kind of thing, because Mary hadn't known a man yet, and of course she wasn't pregnant. Elizabeth had known her husband, and they weren't able to have kids. And that's a very painful thing for people to have to endure. But God reversed her fortunes, and Elizabeth, who is related to Mary, because it says in verse 36, your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And this would be news to Mary. And she would be like, wow, what is happening here? I, so I've, I've been approached by this angel. He's given me this, this great fortune, uh, this, this, this great prophecy, and um, okay. And my cousin, who I know was barren, is now going to have a child. This is, this is great. But look what the angel says. For nothing will be impossible with God. God can do anything. God can reverse anyone's fortunes. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So Mary believed the word of the Lord. She just says, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She believes what the angel says, that nothing is impossible for God. And we'll see this specifically, I think, alluded to in her song of response. But before that, there's another little episode that happens in verse 39. So let's look at that together. So in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. So when I read this, here's what I think happened, okay? Mary gets the word. It's, it's, uh, it's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, and um, I have two kids. I, my third one is on the way, and my wife's going to give birth in February or possibly January, they're saying now, because he's, he's uh, measuring uh, a little big, like three weeks early. But pregnancy lasts about nine months, okay? So we're six months in. We got three to go. And it says, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to town of Judah. So I think this, this going with haste, I think that's going right away. And I think that's, that's a pretty reasonable thing to do because the angel has said that your, your relative who was barren is pregnant. So of course, if you marry, of course, you're probably, I mean, you believe in God. You believe anything's possible. But just because you believe, you still want to go see, right? Of course you want to go see. So she's going to go about a 50 to 70 mile trip from Nazareth to, uh, to the hill country of, of Judea and she's going to go to visit Elizabeth and see with her own eyes. And this is going to bring uh, just assurance, I'm sure, in a lot of ways. Um, and I think she went right away. And then, of course, 
if we skip ahead to the end after her song, which is what we're going to focus on tonight, to, to verse 56, it says, Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. And it's odd that Luke doesn't give us any details about Mary being there when John the Baptist is born, but I think that's, that's kind of what happened. I think Mary probably stayed until John the Baptist was born. And there's this great hubbub. And if you know the story, you know, John's dad, Zechariah, because he didn't believe the angel, was, was made mute. <laughs> and, and then he just bursts forth uh, when, when he says, his name is John, right? And there's, there's all this joy around it. So that would have been a, a great and glorious thing, uh, occasion in their life. Man, the first Christmas was awesome, wasn't it? Of course, I guess this wasn't really Christmas when John was born, but, um, but still, it's, you know, it's, it's within the, the, uh, the purview of what's going on. All right, so, so more on Mary believing the Lord. So she goes to Elizabeth, and verse 41, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And then listen to what Elizabeth says. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So the first thing that Elizabeth, who's older than Mary, says to her, and in, in this culture it would be more customary for the younger to show honor to the older, but here in this case, Elizabeth blesses Mary and says, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So Mary believes and believed in what, what God's message was, and she acted on it. She went down to see with her own eyes. She went down to see Elizabeth in Judea. And then verse 46 begins the Magnificat. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And just look really fast at verse 46. I just read it. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. This is what we're talking about when we say, whom does the Lord regard as lowly? What catches his eye? What does he look upon with favor. He looked on the humble estate of his servant. And we can go back to the angel's greeting to Mary. The, 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 the angel said, greetings, O favored one. O favored one, right? Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And the angel says to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. We ought to be asking ourselves, how did she find favor with God? Why did she find favor with God? And the answer I think, of course, is that she is lowly. And it's not just in order to uh, go along with this slide, which I think is great. I love that cabin. But lowly is actually the word that is used here. In Greek, it's, it's uh, tapenosis. It is a, and since I'm a nerd, I can cite uh, BDAG, which is uh, if you're in seminary, it's the, it's the big volume for, uh, as, as far as Greek lexicons are concerned. 
and it's referring to those of low social status or relative inability to cope with life. And what it means by relative inability is uh, compared to the resources of the rich and the well-to-do who have plenty of ways to comfort themselves, people who are characterized by being lowly are those who uh, do not have access to the same resources to be able to cope with things. And in fact, they may be of low social status, uh, which just furthers their state. To give you an example of this, let's jump to James 1. And James, in chapter 1, will say in verse 9, let the lowly, that's the same word, the humble estate from Mary's song, it's the same word, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And James is writing to a church where there's a mix of people from different economic classes. And there's actually nothing wrong with that for there to be a mix. But there is something wrong when there's favoritism being shown to people who are uh, more well-off or when you're not showing proper honor to those who are not as well-off or something like that. And James just gives this admonition of, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, because we know that the Lord exalts the humble, and the rich in his humiliation, because wealth is just like a flower. It springs up for a moment, and it's beautiful, and everybody wants to look at it, and you might want to pick it, but then it fades, and then it's gone, and that's it. And it, it leaves nothing lasting. But the lowly, the lowly are the ones that the Lord regards. And he's regarded Mary. Back to our passage in Luke 1, 48. He's looked upon the humble estate of his servant, and she says, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Little old Mary, who didn't have anything going, she was just from Nazareth, right? And in fact, John 1, 46, when, uh, when the, the disciples, uh, one of them is being introduced to Jesus, he says, he, knowing that Jesus is from Nazareth, he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? So apparently Nazareth had a reputation, but it had a reputation of being a place where uh, nothing good comes from there. And this is where Mary's from. And now, all generations will call me blessed. By the way, have you guys heard Mary Did You Know? That song, yeah? Uh, have you heard What Child Is This? The babe, the son of Mary. We, we sing about Mary all the time. <laughs> we talk about her. This lowly woman, generations, 2,000 years later, talk about Mary. In fact, some people take it too far. That's the Roman Catholics, okay? Excuse me if you're uh, 
from a Catholic background. But uh, there, there are some cases where Mary is worshipped even, which is odd because in this song, you know, we just read it. She said that my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She acknowledges her need for a Savior right there. So Mary, who is lowly, is regarded by the Lord. She's nameless and insignificant. She believed the Lord. This is the characteristic of one who is lowly, one that, uh, that the Lord turns his favor on. And then notice also that we've, as we've just been looking, that a third characteristic is that the Lord regards those who are poor and humble. Those who are poor and humble. Mary, a one who says, he's looked on my humble estate. The, the fourth characteristic is this, okay? God looks upon the powerless. God looks upon the powerless. And this, is a, uh, this, this point derives from Mary's next statement in verse 49. She says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. She's not going out there to make a name for herself. She's not going out there to uh, take hold of life, or even as, uh, as Miss Nguyen said, trying to help the next generation develop self-confidence, realize their potential, and become leaders of their destiny. Mary ascribes all the goodness that happens to her to God, and she says, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. Her whole song is all about giving glory to God. But there's more. There's more. When, when she says, for he who is mighty, this, I believe, does have an echo of what the angel said to her. Remember, the angel said, nothing will be impossible for God. Okay, I'm going to try to explain Greek to you for a second, Okay. Bear with me. When the angel said, nothing will be impossible for God, the word that he used had a, a root, dunatos, okay, which talks about power or ability. Okay, so nothing will be impossible to, with God. It's a dunatos, okay? When, when, you, when you want to negate something in Greek, you add, you affix the, uh, the Greek alpha to it. Adunatos, okay? If it's, if it's not able, or if it's, if it's uh, not impossible, it's adunatos, okay? Nothing will be adunatos with God. And then in verse 49, when Mary sings, when she breaks forth in jubilation, she says that he who is mighty, and the word she used there, it's actually just a, an adjective it's not even, I mean, in English we say he who is mighty, but really it's just one, one word, and that word is dunatos. The same exact word. Nothing will be impossible for God, and the one who is able to do anything is called dunatos. So I think she's saying Look, this one whom nothing is impossible with, he has done great things for me. 
And of course, the Lord loves to do great things for those who depend on him. That's why he wants us to depend on him. In fact, if you've ever read James, we just turned there, and I was just talking to a fellow this, uh, this evening even about that, and we were, we were just both reminded of the Lord's goodness in providing that passage where James says, count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And you've probably memorized that verse, or maybe you haven't ever heard it. Just go read James tonight, okay? But the bottom line is God sends affliction on those he loves to cause them to depend on him and to grow in maturity. And he loves to deliver them. I just preached on Psalm 118 uh, last week at my church, and it's a song of thanksgiving. And thanksgiving psalms, many of them arise out of a situation in which the psalmist found himself surrounded by enemies and completely helpless. And this is indeed the case with Psalm 118. He was surrounded by enemies. He was, it says he was pushed to the brink so that he was falling, and the Lord helped him. The Lord kept him from falling. The Lord wants us to depend on him because it reminds us that we are just weak and frail, and we actually cannot do anything on our own. It's the fools who go about their lives disregarding God and not wanting to have anything to do with him that actually probably get what's coming for them, right? They do not receive God's favor. They receive what they've chosen for themselves. But here's Mary. Here she is, helpless. And she says, he who is mighty, he who can do anything, has done great things for me. She's going to bear the Savior of the world. And holy is his name. So God regards the poor and the humble. He regards the powerless. And then we'll continue in Mary's song as we illustrate the characteristics of Mary as someone who is regarded as lowly. God regards those who fear him. God regards those who fear him. She says in verse 50, His mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation. Do you know what the fear of the Lord is? What do you, what do you think of when you think of fear and fearing God? Are you a little bit afraid when you think about who God is? You a little bit afraid? Are you not afraid? Are you questioning whether you believe in God? Are you perhaps mad at God and the way he's allowed things to be in this world? Do you misunderstand him? Well, Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And we see throughout the Psalms, throughout Old Testament literature, when you refer to those who fear the Lord, these are the ones who truly know him. They know his greatness. It's like Israel at Mount Sinai. Exodus 19 and 20, the giving of the law. And the Lord comes down on the mountain, and there is smoke, and there is thunder, and lightning. And God tells Moses, don't let the people come up here 
Like, make sure they stay away from this mountain because if they come up and just see me, they're going to die. It's not, it's not that God's going to just inflict punishment on them for, doing, for coming on the mountain. No, it's, it's that God is so holy and great and amazing and sinless that just to see him would be fatal to creatures like us. Just to look at him and see his glory would cause us to drop dead. And so God, out of compassion, says, make sure that everybody keeps their distance. Moses, you may come up to me, but everybody else must stay away. And then God gives Moses the law. And then after the Ten Commandments, if you read Exodus 20, the people are, are just shaking with fear, and they say, uh, Moses, we don't, we don't want to hear directly from God, so why don't you just tell us what he said, okay? Because they're just afraid of him, okay? So when, when you think of fear of the Lord, there should be some being afraid, right? Of course, if you've been raised in the church, if, if you know Jesus, you know that there's a lot more to it. You know that he is a God of compassion and grace and kindness. And so our relation to him, relationship to him is not just one of being afraid all the time. In, in fact, Jesus has opened a way for us so that we can actually come before the Father. And in fact, we are in Christ as Christians and we can call out to him as our Father. We can call him Abba Father. That's amazing. That's an amazing truth. But fear, look, fear is to understand who God is, understand that he is holy and to revere his holy name. Okay, we don't just come lightly to the Lord thinking, oh yeah, you know, we're just, we're just fellow chums and, and you know, whatever. And, uh, you know, you can accuse me of all the stuff I've done. I, I accuse you of your bad stuff. But, we, we, you know, we just kind of, you know, we, we do uh, fluffy fingers, you know, if you watch The Office. No, there's, there is a reverence and a respect for God's name. And look, for those who fear him, Mary says, and she's picking up on Old Testament precedent for this, by the way, which actually leads into my next point. Can't wait for my next point. It's really good. His mercy is for those who fear him. God shows his mercy to those who fear him, right? From generation to generation. All right, I'm, I'm too excited. i got to go right, next to, right to the next point. Okay. So those who fear the Lord, God regards those who fear the Lord. And then finally, this is the sixth one, God regards those who know and keep his word. God regards those who know and keep his word. And Mary exemplifies this very well. This whole song that she bursts into, and for all we know, I mean, she might have just come up with it on the spot, although I don't really think so. I mean, she had... She had several days' journey to Judea, so she probably was pondering these things. She was probably thinking about what the angel said to her, and she may have been writing it along the way or something like that. It's funny, Luke doesn't really give us the details. He records three different songs in the early chapters of Luke, one by Zechariah, one by Mary, one by Simeon. But Mary breaks forth into this praise, and it is riddled with Old Testament allusions and connections and things that are just amazing to behold, and it puts us all to shame, all of us Awana students, because I, I didn't take Awana, okay, so whoever you, maybe you guys did Awana or something like that. Um, I'm a seminary student, and 
I had to, I had to look up these things that Mary had on her mind. But her song most strikingly resembles another song in the Old Testament. Can you guess what it is? Maybe you've heard it before. 1 Samuel 2. You guys should turn there really fast because we're going to look at it. It's awesome. 1 Samuel 2, and this is the song of another helpless woman dealing with pregnancy. And you'll know the story if you've, if you've been to Sunday school before. And if you've not, let me tell you about Hannah. Okay, Hannah was a woman who was competing for her husband's affection because I've never understood it, but lots of guys in the Old Testament had multiple wives, and the Bible never condones it, never says it's a good thing, but it happened. And uh, her husband, Elkanah, is this guy who had two wives, but he loved Hannah the most. But Hannah couldn't have children. She was barren. And so she reached this point of desperation where the other wife was looking down on her and ridiculing her because she could have children, but Hannah couldn't. And so Hannah goes to the Lord's house, and she, she just prays, she just offers up a simple prayer. And you actually find this theme in the Old Testament of the Lord, the Lord helping women who are in this, this situation. Go all the way back to the promise to Abraham, one of the most foundational promises of the Old Testament, and you see that Sarah, his wife, or her name was Sarah back then, she was also barren. And of course, God took Abraham and said, Abraham, you are going to have a child. And not, not just that, you are going to have multiple descendants. In fact, look at the stars. Look at all those stars out there. If you can count them, then you can count your descendants. This would be unbelievable promise to Abraham. Okay? And God, of course, is in the process of fulfilling this all through the Old Testament. But we get to the story of Hannah in, in 1 Samuel 2. And she goes and prays to the Lord, and he hears her prayer. And this woman who was totally powerless and unable to do anything to solve her situation, God looks with grace and favor. Remember, he looks on the lowly, and he regards them and he grants to her to be able to conceive, and she, of course, will give birth to Samuel, the, the great prophet. But look at, look at Hannah's response, and then notice, just notice as I read this, how similar it sounds. It's not identical, but it's similar to what Mary says. So Hannah, in her jubilation, says this. She says, "'My heart exults in the Lord.'" My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. See, those, those few lines that I read, just introductory, have some very strong thematic connections to what Mary said when she said, my soul magnifies the Lord, right? It's almost the same thing. Hannah said, my heart exalts in the Lord. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. That's Mary. And then what Hannah said was, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. She's thinking about God and his salvation. She knows that what's happening to her is more than just being able to have a baby. As, as much as that is a significant thing, no, it has implications beyond just her little situation in life. 
God is doing something much bigger. And in fact, this fits into the piece of how God is working out his salvation. Right? And then Hannah will say, I'm not, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but um, she's going to say in verse 3, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Do you see how the mighty ones of the earth, the rulers, the kings, are brought low? But those who are feeble and powerless are given strength by the Lord. And it says those who are full, those who are satisfied, those, those you know, you might think the rich have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are very hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. So I think there's a very real sense in which Mary modeled a lot of what she said on Hannah's prayer. We go back to, to Mary's song in Luke chapter 1, and in verse 51 she says, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. That's our word again, lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. There was one commentator who wrote his commentary um, many, many years ago. He's referenced by all the cool commentators today. His name is Plummer. I like that name, Plummer. He identified possibly 10 different Old Testament passages to which this song of Mary alludes. And it's fascinating. I'm not going to go all over all of them with you. But I've given you a taste, okay? That's all we have time for tonight is a taste of the connection. And it's clear um, when, you, when you really dive down and do the analysis between Hannah's prayer and Mary's song, they're very similar. But again, under this idea of God regarding those who know and keep his word, look at how Mary concludes her song. She says in verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. You see, Mary knew that this miraculous situation in her life where if, if you follow my timeline where she, like, she hears from the angel and she goes right to Elizabeth's house, she's you know, maybe, maybe like a month pregnant at this point. And not a whole lot changes in that first. I mean, you, you, might, you might be able to, you know, notice certain things. I, I talked to my wife about this day in the car. I was like, so tell me, tell me what, what you know, remind me what, uh, what things are like in that first month. And, it, you know, not a lot changes with your body. Of course, when you're like six or seven months or, you know, you know like my wife, like it's, it starts to become more obvious you're showing, Right. But Mary, at this point, just has the angel's word. She's never experienced, um, you know, a relationship with a man. She sees that Elizabeth is pregnant, okay? So, of course, that gives her confirmation. 
that all that the angel spoke is going to come true. But she knows that all these things that she's just on the verge of experiencing herself and going through this, this, these nine months that lead to, uh, you know, going, riding on the donkey to Bethlehem and all the stuff that we celebrate around Christmas, right? She knows that this is more than just about her. It's not just about her. Life does not revolve around her being the center of the universe. In 54, verse 54, she says, He's helped his servant Israel. That is the true one that God is helping in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. You see, Mary knew that God was fulfilling promises. Promises that go all the way back to Abraham. Abraham, whose descendants constituted the nation of Israel. And if you are a faithful Jew in those days, if you're a, you know, you might say analogous to a Bible-believing Christian today, right? Someone before the New Testament was written. You believe in a glorious future for Israel. That's part of your hope. Part of your expectation of God providing salvation is that he's going to, just like he said to Abraham way back when, he said that you, you know, through you, all nations will be blessed. And I'm going to lift up the nation that comes from your line, right? Mary knows that there is this great expectation and she believes that that's going to happen because she is someone who firmly believes in the Lord. And of course, she couldn't help but say, as she looks on her circumstance and all that God has done, she cannot help but look and say, God, the one who is, the one who is dunitas, right? the one who is powerful, who can do anything and nothing is impossible for him, he has helped his servant Israel. He remembers his mercy. And these are, these are, this is such a soothing balm when you consider that Israel hasn't even heard from the Lord for 400 years. Right? The Old Testament closes with the book of Malachi, and that's the last prophet that God sent to Israel because Israel got in some real big trouble. They didn't follow God's law. God sent them prophets. They did not heed their advice, they didn't pay attention, and God said, I'm going to judge you, I'm going to cast you into exile. It's going to be rough, but there is one coming who's going to redeem this whole situation. That's coming next season, right? And next season was 400 years later, and the angel shows up to Elizabeth first, and then to Mary, right? This is great stuff. This, this is why Christmas gets me excited, because God is on the move, He's doing great things. And those who follow him, those who understand him, those who believe in him, get it. They see. Just as God spoke to our fathers, whenever the Lord says something, it will come true. His spoken word is powerful, right? He will fulfill his promise. And Mary rejoices, as we should too, because God is keeping his promise to Abraham and his offspring forever. And how does she know this? She believes her Bible. She believes what God has written. Okay, so in case you were, you were taking notes and you missed one, I'm going to go through those six things again, okay? I'm done with my sermon. I'm not going to preach anymore. But um, the six things are, here's, here's what God regards as lowly, okay? Really good for us to know this as college students because our, our world is confused about 
who the lowly are and who we should regard as those who need help, right? God regards the nameless and insignificant. He regards those who believe in the Lord, just as Mary did. She believed the angel's message. He regards the poor and humble, like little old Mary from Nazareth. He regards the powerless, those who are unable to save themselves and do great things for themselves. He regards those who fear the Lord. Don't ignore this, right? This is important because there are many people out there who are needy. And we as Christians in the church, we should help the needy. We should care about them. And God, God does care about them, right? But God bestows his grace and his favor on those who fear him, okay? So the greatest, the greatest need of somebody who is poor and destitute, you see a stranger on the street, right? He's begging for money. I'm not, I'm not opposed to you giving him money, although maybe it'll be used for drugs or something like that. You know, maybe it'll be good, used for good too. But the greatest thing they need is to know who God is, who know who Jesus is, and to fear him, right? He regards those who fear him, and then six, those who know and keep his word. Okay, and I think all these things are uh, demonstrated quite clearly in who Mary is, who her character is, and how she responds in jubilation to what God has done for her. And the, the final thing I will say about this is uh, simply what James says in James 4.10. The Lord opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And when you think humble, think lowly. Lowly like Mary. Okay, guys? I want you to think about that tonight. I want you to go home, and I want you to be lowly and see what God does for you. Okay? All right, let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for this night. We thank you that we could come together and look at your word. Thank you for your regard for those who are from humble estate, Lord. God, thank you that you've looked upon each of us in your favor, those who have called on the name of Jesus, because we realized that our state was perilous. We were caught in our sin. We had no hope outside of you. And you, God, stretched down into our lives reversed our fortunes, and gave us infinite hope in Christ because you regard the lowly. Lord, help us to praise you like Mary. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.